You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 46, part nine of the Gallipoli series. In this episode, I'll get back to where I left off on the last episode, Suvla Bay. And I'm about the August 15th mark. But before I do, let me tell you what I'm drinking. I'm actually not drinking anything exciting on this episode. I just had a healthy green drink, and right now I'm washing it down with some coffee. And you're probably thinking, why? It's because I uh, just went back to jujitsu after taking several years off. And I know this isn't that kind of podcast, but I'm getting to the reason why. Um, I've been back about three weeks. I took it easy the first kind of week and a half, maybe two weeks. Last week, I just went at it hard. My shoulder is destroyed, so I'm taking a lot of nutrients, a lot of vitamins. I'm trying to quickly repair my shoulder. So why I'm doing so, I'm choosing not to drink uh, any hard alcohol or anything like that. Um, my focus this is on getting recovered real quick, which should be a few days, and I'll be back into it. That's what I'm trying to be able to do right now, just for this episode. All right. Since I got my coffee in hand and it is tasting lovely, let me do some recapping from the last episode. For me, the best part about talking about World War I is the personal stories from the soldiers who survived it. I've said this many times, and I've introduced several individuals up to this point, and each one's story is remarkable in its own way. Episode 45, I talked about Ivan Kirkpatrick. Like many others, a miracle manifested in which he miraculously survived his ordeal to tell the story. He was shot in the chest, which the bullet barely missed the heart, but penetrated his lung. Moments later, he was shot a second time in the stomach. We've come a long way in medical technology or trauma aid on the battlefield. However, even today, a shot through the lung, your chances of dying, it's pretty good. At least if you don't make it to a hospital right away or a highly trained medic or a paramedic can't get to you quickly. Here's what the person can expect when shot in the lung. The body will start to suffer the effects of low oxygen, which could lead to death from low oxygen. The bleeding can also cause death by bleeding out. If the body loses enough blood, your blood pressure will drop, the heart will begin to race, and then you'll go into shock. The timing of death really depends on a person's overall health condition. Now, this can be treated, but you need intensive treatment ASAP. Every second counts. And this is today. Think about 1915 medical technology. Again, it was a miracle that Kirkpatrick survived his ordeal. Keep in mind this poor guy had to crawl to safety. Then, finally after being rescued, he had to be taken off a ridgeline down to the beach by two stretcher bears. Today, a person with these injuries would have to be medevac by a helo because again, every second counts. It took the two men over an hour to get him down to the beach and along the way, they stumbled a few times, dropping him. Kirkpatrick was clinging to life, 
gasping for breath, bleeding out. His stomach was violently cramping, going in and out of consciousness. I mentioned also in the last episode that I do believe in miracles. I say this because I don't know how this man survived such an ordeal. Surviving wounds with that much time that has passed before he was able to make it to to at least good medical aid, but in his case, aboard a hospital ship. Wounds that would kill a man today. And I don't care how tough you are or how high of a pain tolerance a person has. Tough guys die. They die in combat. They die on the streets. They can die anywhere with those types of wounds. The case of you being tough gets thrown out in this scenario because after gunshots like this, it's how good are your vital organs holding up to the trauma. That's what really matters at that point. But an hour of being carried and dropped down a ridgeline before getting to the beach, then he still had to be transported to the medical ship. You know, we're getting to a whole new area of how th- was this possible? And I'm all ears. If there's a logical or medical explanation how Kirkpatrick could have survived such an ordeal, I'm all ears. Until then, I'm going to have to believe there was some sort of miracle involved. Regardless what you choose to believe, Ivan Kirkpatrick's story is an amazing one. Another sort of miracle I discussed in the last episode was about units from the 10th and 11th Division policing themselves up and launching a successful raid onto Green and Chocolate Hills on the 7th of August. The odds were stacked against them in the numbers. I mean, the Turks had the area heavily defended by now. Yet still, these brave British soldiers rushed the trenches and drove their bayonets through the chest cavities and skulls of the Turks. This was a small victory for the British that they desperately needed. However, The tide would again play against them as time was wasted and the Turks reinforced their lines with reserves from the 7th and 12th divisions. My wife complains, I'm not the best communicator at times, but let me tell you it doesn't come close to the lack of communication from the British at Gallipoli. I'm a saint compared to that. The British communication at this point, let's just say it completely broke down. Units were scattered all about. Surrey and Hamilton was in a fit of rage at this point. Precious time had been wasted. Opportunities missed. And to top it off, men were dying of thirst and were hungry. By the 15th of August, the situation for the British, let's just say it it was a desperate one. And this will bring us to where we left off. As Kirkpatrick was being evacuated to the hospital ship, the men who'd been thrown into another attack failed to make any valuable gains. For the Irish who were waiting to attack along the ridge of Kirich Tepe, lack of progress at Kidney Hill along with blistering Turkish counterattacks resulted in failure of them taking the ridge. I'll have another picture of Suvla on my social media where you can see Kirich Tepe along with Kidney. I like visual learning I like to see pictures, maps, or just about anything I can put a name to the face when learning about history. This particular point in time is very important for the history on the Dardanelles campaign. It was at this point that Sir Ian Hamilton 
realized Suvla had become just like a Hellas and Anzac, that the original lines established weren't moving anywhere. He now realized it was a failure. In fact, he's realizing this whole damn campaign was a failure. On the 17th of August, he sent a wire to Kitchener that read the following. Unfortunately, the Turks have temporarily gained the moral ascendancy over some of our new troops. If, therefore, this campaign is to be brought to an early and successful conclusion, large reinforcements will have to be sent to me. Drafts for the formations already here and new formations with considerably reduced proportion of artillery. It has become a question of who can slog longest and hardest, owing to the difficulty of carrying on winter campaign and the lateness of the season, these troops should be sent immediately. My British divisions are at present 45,000 rifles under establishment, exclusive of about 9,000 promised or on the way. If the deficit were made up and new formations totaling 50,000 rifles sent out as well, these, with the 60,000 rifles which I estimate I shall have at the time of their arrival, should give me the necessary superiority unless the absence of other enemies allows the Turks to bring up large additional reinforcements. General Sir Ian Hamilton, Headquarters, MEF. First of all, the early successful conclusion to this campaign has already been lost. It's now August 17th. This historical amphibious assault began on the 25th of April. They're darn near four months into this debacle. And now... Hamilton is saying he needs more than 100,000 soldiers on the ground to make this successful. And that this needed to happen quickly. Because he's admitting to something else. He's saying the Turks reinforced quickly and heavily. And that is what's winning the campaign so far. So if he doesn't get the numbers he wants or needs, then this will result in overall failure. You know... This must have been an extremely nerve-wracking letter to write Kitchener. Again, the British military is among the best in the world at this time. They're going up against the Turks. And they're losing. And Hamilton had to admit this to Lord Kitchener. He did it in a political, don't-blame-me fashion. But after reading the fine print, he's admitting they've failed up to this point. But again, let's give credit where credit is due. The Turks have proven to put up a good fight. Mustafa Kemal took overall command and control of the situation and massed his reserves onto the hotspots. I would go as far as to say that Kemal was the best overall commander during this campaign. Problem for Hamilton was, on the Western Front, where the heart of this war really lies, the Allies are planning for a spring offensive. The British role in this would be a supporting attack on Dulaz starting on the 25th of September. They couldn't afford to take away from the men there. After stalling with consideration, Kitchener could only promise 13,000 replacements and 12,000 new soldiers. Hamilton is roughly 30,000 short of his needed number. And you'll have to finally commend Hamilton for recognizing the plan really was a failure and having the courage to write Kitchener the cable. But I don't want to take the pat on the back too far. The failure of the 9th Corps at Suvla was largely blamed on the incompetent Stopford and his senior generals. 
This was heard coming from Hamilton and his staff. And that part is true. There was some major incompetence at the senior level. I've discussed this. Hamilton described the Ninth Corps as to putting new wine in old bottles, new troops with old generals. He said the old timers lacked guts and gumption, which is what was needed at Suvla. I mean, guts and gumption is needed for all campaigns during the Great War. I guess in a way he's right about that. However, Hamilton seemed to be blaming everyone else and not the overall plan. He's the one who had the final approval of the plan at Suvla. Now, he and his staff are doing everything they can to save their asses. The politics of war. A major from Hamilton's staff later said the following. Our plans all succeeded and worked out beyond satisfactorily. But the task set to the new army divisions was, as it turned out, rather beyond their powers, owing to the fact that their officers were not sufficiently trained. It is no one's fault. Officers can't be made good company leaders even after nearly a year. The result was that, though the new army divisions were not opposed by any great force, and though they had practically no artillery against them, they could not get on quickly enough, and their advance hung fire. Major Guy Donny, Headquarters, MEF. I'll let you absorb and digest that one. So if Major Donny knew it took a year for British Army to mold good field officers, then why didn't anybody speak up during the plan? Why did they, they proceed with allowing this to take place, knowing they didn't have the properly trained men as needed? At the end of the day, Hamilton had the overall responsibility of everything that took place at Gallipoli, but he wasn't about to go down for this. He made excuses, blaming it on the Ninth Corps senior officers and competence. And although he isn't wrong about that fact, he was wrong not to accept responsibility. Regardless, on the 15th of August, General Stopford was dismissed and Hamilton brought in Lieutenant General Julian Bing to replace him. Bing was pulled from the Western Front to take over command of the Ninth Corps. That was just the start. There was more shuffling of commanders, but one of the big ones was Major General Frederick Hammersley being replaced on the 23rd of August by Major General Edward Fenshaw of the 11th Division. Hammersley would be shipped back to England for medical reasons. The official cause was battle fatigue. I think he struggled with previous shell shock along with the new trench warfare. It was just too much for him to handle. Sadly, Hammersley will end up passing away in 1924 at the age of 66. There's not much history in Hammersley. Everything on the internet says the same thing. It's short. They talk about his military career and the fact that he got married and had some children. And really, that's about it. Overall, there was a major shakeup at the Ninth Corps, as many of the generals had been relieved due to their incompetence and failures. And you have to ask yourself, was this really fair? Would any other commander, and let's say they had experience, say they'd been pulled from the Western Front. Do you think that if they had taken generals from the Western Front, they would have done any better? Truthfully, I don't. 
I think the Turks overall reserve force commanded by Kemal still would have had the upper hand. And I think Surrey and Hamilton should have been put in the hot seat for this. He should have been the first to be relieved of his position. Look, he's the captain of that ship and he was about to go down with that sinking boat. He saved himself and threw the others to the abyss. A real blue falcon right there. And if you don't know what a blue falcon is, Google. Google blue falcon military term. Urban Dictionary has the best description. So, August 21st came, and the 9th Corps, after dealing with all the other sackings of commanders, decided, hey... Let's launch a new assault. The new commander, General Bing, wasn't on the ground yet. It would take time for his arrival. In the meantime, Major General Beauvoir de Lille had temporary command, and it was de Lille who decided on this attack. His goal was to seize the foothills of Skimeter and W Hills, along with the Anzac seizing Hill 60. Here's a couple points to note regarding this attack. This is the same attack plan they just attempted, which failed. And now, with the few days that have passed since they pulled back, this gave Kamal even more time to reinforce the ridgelines. I'm sure you can see where this is going. Hamilton again stamps the approval. He even sends up the 29th Division from Hellas to support the attack. The 29th would attack Skimeter Hill while the 11th Division would attack the W Hills. Both these divisions are hurting at this point. They've lost a lot of men, and both are physically exhausted. But the 29th has been fighting since the landings on the 25th of April. They're, they're also mentally exhausted, almost to the extreme limit of what a person could withstand. And now Hamilton will send them into another hornet's nest. Alongside this attack, a brigade from the Anzac Corps would launch an attack on Hill 60. That was the area between Anzac and Suvla. Right behind Lala Baba, which lies at the point between the southern section of the Salt Lake and Suvla Bay, the 2nd Mounted Division would arrive onto the beach to join the fight. DeLille and other commanders knew they were hanging on by a string. Any attack could be their last. They decided to unleash what they had for artillery bombarding the Turkish lines into hell. On August 21st, at 1430 hours, a combination of heavy guns, howitzers, rounds from the pre-dreadnought HMS Swiftsure, a few cruisers, and a destroyer, all poured down steel onto Turkish positions for a half an hour. A Turkish officer recalls what his experience was like, saying the following. Two howitzer shells whined over our heads. They fell on the 5th company a little to our left. One shell fell in front of the trench and another behind it. There was a tremendous explosion that filled the air with dust and smoke. Howitzers are different from other guns. We can't hear the gun fire. It's coming from somewhere on the right flank. The shells make a strange whistling noise as they pass over our heads. They Then they land and explode with a great noise. They destroy where they land. May Allah help those who happen to be there. 
They're using Mestan Tepe as a sighting point. The trenches on the other side of it are under heavy artillery fire. This is turning into a major battle. The howitzer shells are coming so fast they seem like a constant thunder. Nothing can be seen for the dust and smoke. I cannot see how far the bombarded area extends. A while later, the 3rd Battalion companies who were in reserve began to arrive. They are sent to fill the gaps in the shelled trenches. But the shelling is still going on, so they pack into our trenches. There's hardly room to move. If Allah was on the Muslim side, he would stuff the British guns with straw and their guns could not fire. He doesn't stuff them, and they fire as they wish. Lieutenant Ishmael Haki Sonata, 2nd Battalion, 35th Regiment, 12th Division, 5th Army. Despite Sonata's report on the shelling, they didn't get bombed into hell. You'd think all the trenches would have been churned up, turning them into mulch. But the truth is, the damage wasn't that extent. I mean, imagine that. The greater portion of the Turkish lines remained untouched. And none of the shelling touched the rear lines, which left the reserve safe and unharmed. The British were walking into another death trap. But just like before, this never stopped them from a fight. 1,500 came. The whistle blew, and the boys went over the top. Sonata was right. This was turning into a major battle. I'm going to read several quotes, some long, some from British officers, and some from Ishmael Sonata, because this is giving you the real picture of what the men experienced on this day. I can give you my imaginative perspective, what it must have been like, but sometimes it's better to hear it from the horse's mouth rather than the jockey. First, an officer from the 11th Division described his ordeal after the whistle blew, saying the following. The air is full on every side with invisible death. A bullet kicks up a little spray of dust from the dry gray earth underfoot. Another and another to the left and right. The sensation of terror is swallowed in an overwhelming conviction that the only possible course is forward. Forward at any cost. That is what we've been telling ourselves all through the long waiting. And that is our only clear impression now. Forward and we instinctively bend as one does to meet a hailstorm and rush for it. Beyond the rough plowed ground over which we are advancing lies a low thick belt of brambles and bushes. Here for a time we can lie under cover and regain our breath for a second rush. Down we go behind the kindly shelter and the bullets fly over us. Telling the men to be quiet, I crawl through the brush and try to find another direction for our next rush. Satisfied of that direction, once more, our line bursts through the bushes and rushes over into the open to the next hedge. A new horror discloses itself. Boom! Hissing and loud explosions. On every side, the ground is torn up by the heavy leaden pellets as the shrapnel burst over us. To the left and right of me, fresh sounds break out. Dreadful human sounds which I won't describe. 
2nd Lieutenant Edmund Priestman, 6th York and Lancaster Regiment, 32nd Brigade, 11th Division. Ishmael Sonato recalls the moment, saying the following. Suddenly, the howitzers shelling the trenches fell silent. The naval guns and shrapnel shelling on the rear continued. When the howitzer fire stopped, the dust and smoke over the trenches slowly began to clear. From the right, the word had was passed by mouth. The enemy have risen to the attack. Let the left flank take care. The news came from Kirich Tepe. Indeed, behind the slowly clearing dust and smoke from our position, we began to see masses of British advancing. We immediately opened fire on them from the flank. The enemy is not attacking out front, but that of our units to the left, our flanking fire is very effective. As the dust and smoke cleared from over them, the units to our left also opened fire. Now it's up to the infantry. All the reserves and other idle forces began to move in that direction, towards the area under attack. The infantry fire is getting stronger and stronger. At this time, I heard that Rustem's company commander had been seriously wounded. A howitzer shell landed next to a squad's trench and exploded. All the soldiers in the trench were buried. The excitement mounts and we are consumed by anxiety and worry. I doubt the enemy can succeed when all is up to the infantry rifles, but I don't know how much damage the artillery fire did. The British keep coming. We see this and fire incessantly. Lieutenant Ishmael Haki Sanada, 2nd Battalion, 35th Regiment, 12th Division, 5th Army. You can hear from the British side how intense it was with rifle fire coming at them, and the Turks confirmed this. Also, Sonata spoke about those soldiers being buried in the trench where the artillery round exploded on them. This is actually common during the Great War. Groups of men would be buried right there in the trench as the round exploded. They're still finding groups of men buried together in trenches on all the battlefields, and more than likely this is what happened. And you have to think about this. Some of the men didn't die immediately. Some were seriously wounded, but still breathing, meaning they were buried alive. The Turkish government just handed over the remains of 17 soldiers to the French government to be properly buried. This was just about several weeks ago. You can Google this. Several articles will come up. I don't want to steer too far off, but since we're on the subject, I'd like to mention one more. The Trench of Bayonets Memorial at Verdun is a memorial dedicated to a group of French soldiers from a 137th Regiment who were buried alive. All that could be seen was their bayonets sticking up from the ground. Now, there's controversy in almost everything. After the war ended, some commanders went back to walk the sites and said it was possible the bodies were placed in such a manner. However, it was common for soldiers to be buried alive as I described. I doubt the soldiers had time to make such an elaborate burial, especially after done, which I'll be getting into soon. Other commanders believe they were buried on impact. Regardless, it's a moving memorial. I made a visit in 2017. I highly suggest seeing it if you're planning a trip. And it's near many other sites, so you're not going off the beaten path. I'll post a couple pictures on social media. You can read more about the bayonet of trenches and form your own conclusion what you think happened. Personally, I believe they were buried alive. 
Okay, uh, back to Gallipoli. At Skimeter Hill, the 29th Division, even having battle experience, weren't doing so good, mainly due to the doomed circumstances. And what I mean by doomed circumstances is, Anafarta's spur was heavily reinforced and had a perfect position for putting enfilading fire onto Skimeter. You can only imagine what kind of damage these machine guns could do with a perfect view of the men approaching. The men pushed forward, then were driven back. This went on several times before Delil decided to send in the last reserves, the second mounted division. The mounted were brought into the beach behind Lalababa, behind cover. However, to get to Skimeter Hill, they would have to travel through the Salt Lake, which was in plain view of Turkish artillery. Skimeter Hill is just about east of Lalababa and the Salt Lake. A captain from the mounted described their movement, saying the following. After about half an hour's progress, we reached the enemy shrapnel, through which, of course, we have to bound to pass if we were to attain Chocolate Hill. Casualties began, but our orders were strict and forbade us to stop for anyone. When men fell, they had to be left for the stretcher parties which were following. Suddenly, I saw with horror my troop hit by a shell and eight men go down. The rest were splendid. They simply continued to advance in the proper formation at a walk and awaited the order, which did not come for another quarter of an hour before breaking into the double. Captain William Wedgwood Ben, 4th Brigade, 2nd Mount Mounted Division. And it was about this time the Turkish artillery began to rain the fire on the men. Again, this was an easy target for them. They were walking in the open. It was like a turkey shoot for the Turkish. A young officer described it, saying the following. The first shell I remember seeing burst a little over to my left, nearly smashing an ambulance party with stretchers. The next thing I saw was one of our staff captains double up, then run towards the ambulance to be attended to. Then our colonel dropped with a bullet through his jaw. After that, shells and bullets began to burst and spit amongst us properly. First, one poor fellow would double up and fall, then another poor chap would collapse all in a heap. I suddenly found that we were all in double though. As far as I had heard, no order had actually been given. There are one or two more incidents which stood out in my mind. One was the bursting of a shell, little to my right, scattering bullets right through us. It was from this shell that most of the casualties of my troops were made, and I distinctly remember ducking under a piece of it, which ricked from the sand, sang just over me, hitting someone on the left flank, smashing his rifle, which was held up in front of his face to protect him. He came through unhurt. Another thing I remember was getting caught with some part of my equipment in some bushes and how bad-tempered I got, to say the least, because I thought it would prevent me keeping up with my pals. I also remember how fearful the desire seemed to want to lie down behind each bush or tuft of grass to take useless cover. In fact, most of us did start to get down in one place where the shells were falling thickest, but I think it was more through fatigue than anything else. However, we had hardly touched the ground when our adjutant running from the rear yelled, Come on, boys. It's worse if you lie down. 
So off we went again until we reached the safety under coverage of Chocolate Hill. This was our baptism of fire, which had to be done in cold blood, because the enemy were absolutely invisible and we had no chance to get our own back in any way. Lieutenant Harold Davis, 1st Brigade, 2nd Mountain Division. Can you imagine moving through the open terrain and artillery rounds are dropping everywhere and there is no safe direction? The Turkish gunners had such a clear picture of the area. Their field of fire made this wall of chaos that every one of the mounted had to pass through. The men said, to hell with the orders, double time it to safety. With sweat and blood dripping down their face, they were desperate to get out of this death zone. And after reaching some cover at Chocolate Hill, they were quickly launched into an attack on Skimeter Hill and W Hills, the objective. William Ben described it saying the following. Up to that moment, I can remember nothing but wild excitement and supreme buoyancy as of one living in oxygen. During the next advance, we had no shell fire to meet, only rifle and machine gun. New experience for us, and one which inspired more fear than it really merited. We ran across the first field and jumped into the line of trenches, then out again and forward into the next trench leaping in on top of the men of the division ahead of us, whose reserves we were. They nearly all, I recollect, shouted to us as we approached to take cover and get down, but almost always tried to wave us away with the particular part they themselves were occupying. The fact was, they were packed tight. I should say one man to every 15 inches. That same man, William Ben, he then went on to describe advancing onto the slopes of Skimeter Hill. As far as we could see, it provided good cover, for there appeared to be a number of reserves lying there in perfect quiet and safety. Out we sprang with a shout and ran forward to the selected spot, only to find that it was under brisk machine gun fire. The reserves were quiet indeed, for they were dead. We lay f down flat and then crawled a little higher up the hill, hearing all the time the terrifying rattle of the Maxim, which we, of course, thought was the cause of all the killing. We assured one another, for our better comfort, that it must be one of our own guns covering the advance, and this, in fact, turned out to be true. We saw nothing for it now, but to get up and shift our position. For one thing, the bushes in front of us were alight and the fire was steadily advancing onto the corpses at our side. Captain William Ben, 2nd Mounted Division. This captain's describing the hillside catching fire and then spreading, making its way to the dead and wounded. <clears throat> the dead are going to be burned right in front of them. I mean, that's just another horror to add to the scene. For most people, seeing a body burn down is, what's the appropriate word? Taboo, is, is that the right word? It can be disturbing to most. The Hindus call the burning of a body Mukhagni. I think I said, <laughs> I hope I said that right. I've seen it in a, in a video, never live in person. And even on, on a video, it's a little disturbing. Anyway, this isn't a religious ceremony at Gallipoli. These are their dead and wounded comrades being burned in front of them. The wounded being burned alive that would mentally scar them for the rest of their lives. A soldier described the scene, saying the following. 
A long belt of gorse and scrub had caught alight with the shells, which very quickly spread. There was no help for it but to push through and chance to luck, which I did, almost choking with smoke. An awful death trap this was, and it claimed many victims. The poor devils simply dropped in dozens and were speedily burnt with the flames, a sight that I shan't forget. Corporal Collins Millis, 2nd Mounted Division. As night fell, naturally you'd imagine there was confusion and concern. And I don't want to say fear because these men, I believe, already looked fear in the eyes and overcame that. I think on edge is what I imagine most of them were feeling as night fell. And on both sides. Numbers sometimes paint a better picture. And to give you a perspective how bad the 21st of August was just at Suvla, for the British... 5,300 out of the 14,300 were killed. And that's just KIAs, not casualties, which include wounded. Who knows what the actual casualty count was? And it was bad for both sides. As the evening set, both Turkish and British wounded on the battlefield could be heard moaning in agony, others pleading for help. Ishmael Sonata claimed that during the majority of the evening on the 21st through the early morning hours of the 22nd, the soldiers spent most of their time gathering up the wounded and dead that could safely be reached. Now, let's talk about the Anzacs. There were a number of battalions that had lost many of men up to this point. What they did was they scooped the, all these men up and formed them together. And this makes sense. Their job was to launch an assault onto Hill 60 on the 21st of August, just a half an hour after the main assaulting force launched at Suvla. The route they would take would be through the valley of Demigelic Bear, north of Anzac Cove, then onto Hill 60 to the northeast. Again, I'll have a map of uh, the Anzac area on my social media, or you can Google one yourself. But here's an important thing to keep in mind. Hill 70, which won't show on my map, is a hilltop that has a perfect enfilading position covering Damagelic Bears Valley leading into Hill 60. At this point, it was very heavily fortified with Turkish trenches and machine guns. Officers from the NZNA division later said they could have taken Hill 60 and Hill 100 with minimal casualties back on August 7th if orders would have permitted. And yet they wait until Hill 60 is overwhelmed with Turks and machine guns to order an attack. Some didn't believe they stood a chance. This attacking force now consisted of 250 men from the 13th and 14th battalions of the NZNA divisions and would take place in three waves. An officer part of the first wave described the launching of, of the attack saying the following. The men rose as one and rushed to the attack. The severity of the naval bombardment led us to believe that no Turk will be left alive on the position. But as soon as we topped, the rise of merciless hail of rifle and machine gun fire met us, and men fell quickly. A rush down the slope over a dry gully and up the other slope. I found myself at the first objective, a ridge, with six men. I sent Sergeant Norman McDonald to the right and another to the left to see if any more had gotten over. One could not see for the scrub and broken ground. McDonald found 10 on the right 
and about 24 reported on the left, 40 of us out of the 150 in about a 200 yards rush. The Turks kept up a very heavy fire, making it impossible to advance with so few. Lieutenant Hubert Ford, 13th New South Wales Battalion, 4th Brigade, NZNA Division. 40 out of the 150 from the first wave survived. The machine guns in place with enfilading fire literally had every piece of the ground covered leading into the valley. The 40 were really just lucky and all they could do was wait for the others or if any other waves would arrive. A major leading the third later described saying the machine gun fire was so intense all they could do was stop and hold their position until it eased up. He described having dead and wounded everywhere. But even worse for his wave was when the brush lit fire due to the artillery. The wounded who they couldn't help burned to death. Eventually they made it to the remaining first wave in the position they held. There was only 50 remaining at this point. How could they possibly take Hill 60 with 50 men? Yes, I've described what I believe was a miracle, but man, come on. They needed more than a miracle. They had to dig in where they were. Uh, again, going back to the evening of the 21st of August, the Turks still held Hill 60. The only good thing about the brush fires was it provided a smoke screen for medics and stretcher bearers to help the wounded. The dead were left where they lied. The 5th Australian Brigade would be thrown into the action on the morning of the 22nd. These men were fresh, hadn't seen action. They believed they were going to, to replace troops who were already in a trench line. They didn't know they were being thrown to the wolves. They had been marching since about midnight. By the time they had reached a Gurkha trench, they were, of course, tired, hungry, and thirsty. But they were told to fix bayonets. And the men holding the Gurkha trench weren't about to feel sorry for the 5th Brigade. What they were feeling was nothing new to them. At 0600 hours, they were ordered to attack. One soldier said as they went over, bullets were whizzing past him in every direction, along with artillery rounds exploding on all sides. He was hit and fell. He believed God was watching over him. This must have been the only reason he made it out. He lay behind a dead comrade. The body shielded him from many bullets. All he could hear was bullets continuously thudding onto the dead body. All he could hope for was when the night fell that a stretcher bearer would come get him. But night only brought a full moon, and stretcher bearers weren't about to risk it. This soldier laid behind this body up to the next morning. He crawled for an hour to a trench where finally New Zealanders pulled him over. Up to now, no real gains had been made. Another attack in a desperate effort was ordered for the 27th of August. At this point, they're just scooping up what they can to throw it on the Turks. The off-season Kiwis gathered what they could. At 1600 hours, the Connaught Rangers went over the top and managed to secure some Turkish lines on the southern sector. Another unit scooped up for this was the 10th Light Horse, which had less than 200 men still feeling the effects of the slaughter they endured at the neck. Now, they're being flung into another desperate last stand. With as much grit and determination as the Rangers, 
they pressed forward and managed to gain some ground. A corporal wrote the following. The Turks made a very determined counterattack from the right and the right rear of our position. They came in waves crying, Allah, Allah. At one time, we could see a German officer standing on the parapet of their trench, urging the men on, but he was soon put out of action. They came right up to the muzzles of our rifles and were only kept out by rapid fire and bomb throwing. They managed to smash down our first barricade, but another one was built at the next traverse and a stand was made from there. Fortunately, many of the enemy bombs had long time fuses and we had time to catch a number of these bombs and throw them back before they exploded. Of course, some were missed, exploding our, amongst our men and did a great deal of damage. Corporal Henry Mackney, 10th Light Horse, 3rd Light Horse Brigade, AIF. This turned into a desperate fight for both sides. The British, relentless and weren't giving up. The Turks had to counterattack and hold at all costs. One of the key objectives at this point was to cut off the communication lines for the Turks. The British ordered any available groups to attack the communication trenches. Because if you stomp this line out, the communication would start to break. Runners between the lines were usually small, fast guys, and sometimes they were children. It was normal for units to use children for that. I'm saying this with quotes that they snuck into service. Most of the older soldiers like NCOs or commanders knew these were children, some as young as 15 years of age, so they used them as runners. And these runners were getting plucked off left and right by snipers and riflemen. As they were running, it would be common for them just to fling to the side after getting hit. A young officer described holding a barricade point that blocked off a Turkish communication line saying the following. The Turks are fine fighters and extremely brave men. And all that night they stood on one side of the barrier within five yards of us trying to bomb us out. The Turks counterattacked three times. That does not sound very much, but I can assure you that with the Turks within five yards of you, with only a couple of feet of sandbag barriers between, and with hundreds of them coming at you with fixed bayonets in the front, chances of coming through that ordeal alive are very remote. Second Lieutenant Hugo Throssel, 10th Light Horse. Again, the Turks knew the British were coming in with everything they had. And they weren't about to give in. All through the night, the Turks launched counter-assaults after counter-assaults. During the night, the Connaught Rangers joined up with the 10th Light Horse. Fighting was to the extreme at which you can only imagine. Bombs were being lobbed in every direction. The Turks would nickname Hill 60 Bomba Tepe. It was that bad. The Rangers lost their line, which upset the Anzacs. But again, these men are down to their last. Holding any line at this point was, was shocking. Right before dawn, the Turks made a grand finale assault. As the early morning light was breaking through, the British could make out what looked like hordes of ants coming out of their nest. The Turks crawling over their trenches in full mass coming straight at them. The British knew this was going to be their version of Custer's last stand. They waited for the Turks to get closer. Wait, 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 
When they got within 10 yards, the men stood up with a loud yell and unloaded every rifle with every bullet they could as fast as they could. They would rapid fire the rifle until the ammo ran out, barrels glowing red. Then they would pick up another one which was lying on top of the dead, repeating the rapid fire. On and on this went. The British made their stand. However, once light fully broke on the battlefield, it painted another picture for the British, a sobering one. Though they had made a stand and killed many Turkish soldiers fighting for Skimeter Hill, W Hills, and Hill 60, the Turkish still had the upper hand. They controlled the majority of the upper trench lines on the hills, and more importantly, they still had plenty of soldiers left, including reserves. The British were down to almost nothing. And yes, fighting for these hills would have been the good option because they're strategic points for further ongoing operations if they had men coming in to help. But that wasn't the case. So further ongoing operations is in question now. Should they stay or should they go? All right, folks, that's going to wrap up episode 46. On the next episode, which should wrap up the Gallipoli series, I'm going to dive into the decisions made next. It's a desperate time for the British, and we'll see what they plan to do. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I have no recommendations for this one, so I'll just wish you all the best and give you all a big thank you for continuing to support the podcast by listening. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.